So it's really important for us to realize the technology that we have today is not going to simplify or reduce discrimination or racism because it's not being deployed in space. <laughs> it's being deployed right here where we are in many respects either uh, active or passive actors who have accepted the type of colonialistic as well as oppressive practices that have actually been historically embedded in our society. So I had to be deep on it. But for me, that is the disconnection that is not often made when we try to unpack bias in computer systems because we don't have many people in the social sciences that are actually talking to the computer scientists on those actual matters. Hi, everybody. This is How Tech Becomes Law, a public interest tech podcast about technology, public policy, and career advice. We are your co-hosts, Jingyan Zhang and Drew Gupta. This week, we have a conversation with Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee from the Brookings Institution about how tech can address inequality, especially regarding algorithmic discrimination and broadband access. Dr. Turner Lee is a senior fellow in governance studies, the director of the Center for Technology Innovation, and serves as co-editor-in-chief of Tech Tank. Dr. Turner Lee researches public policy designed to enable equitable access to technology across the U.S. and to harness its power to create change in communities across the world. She has a forthcoming book on the U.S. digital divide titled Digitally Invisible, How the Internet is Creating the New Underclass forthcoming 2021. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Turner-Lee. Can you tell us more about your work at the Brookings Institution and kind of what you're up to? Thanks for having me, and I'm really excited to be here. So the Brookings Center for Technology Innovation is a really interesting center, right? We've been around for about 10 years, and our goal really started 10 years ago with the purpose of identifying telecommunications policy, not even technology policy at the time. And that center has become so relevant as we see how technology is transforming the way we live, we learn, we earn, even our, how we love, right? And technology and its accelerated adoption and use really has some policy uh, implications, whether they're regulatory or legislative. So at the center, we deal with anything from privacy legislation to spectrum policy to broadband infrastructure to artificial intelligence to antitrust concerns. And these are what we call this in the news kind of issues that we as researchers are able to address. And our scholars come from all walks of life, from working in the administration to be heads of regulatory agencies like Tom Wheeler, who's a former chairman of the FCC. But I'm really proud of the Institute. And I'm the second director, believe it or not, after my boss, but he's also the founder. My particular portfolio morphs from the center, just to say it briefly. I particularly focus on issues related to the digital divide, privacy, and other regulations that affect people. So I'm more into consumer protection. And my work intersects race, technology, and social justice. And so I spent a lot of time in that space. I also run for the institution, for the Brookings Institution overall, our artificial intelligence initiative. And my focus there is on algorithm bias. So I just want people to know I'm a sociologist, not a technologist, and I'm not working government, but I find my portfolio to be very complementary to what the center actually wants to accomplish. So can you talk a little more about that? I mean, especially about your personal motivation, why you want to work on issues such as algorithmic discrimination? 
Yeah, so it's very interesting. I, like many people, took a computer science class as part of a requisite when I was at Coley University. And I could tell you this, that I was not very good at it. I think we were supposed to move the cow about two inches, and I think my cow got a half an inch and then just didn't go any further. And when I think about science, that was not my thing. But what was my thing while I was in college was sociology. I am just a nerd when it comes to thinking about structural intersectionalities and how we look at discrimination and racism and inequality. So I actually graduated with a sociology major, an undergraduate, and an African-American studies minor. I later went on to get my PhD with a focus in racial and ethnic inequality, and I actually stumbled into technology as a volunteer. I was working on my PhD in Northwestern in Chicago at the time, and I was volunteering at a tech center in a public housing development. That gave me the bug. It was, had nothing to do with my studies. It was more of this whole fascination around the imaginative capacity of the internet at the time. Seeing young African-American girls and boys come into the center, wondering what a 386 computer was, how they actually used a CD-ROM. And I know that there are probably some people who don't know what I'm talking about, but that really drove me to want to pursue a public policy career that is where I'm at right now. And I've, I've had several think tanks that I've worked for, but most recently at the Brookings Institution. And so I got curious about algorithmic discrimination in the same way that I was curious about digital discrimination, Uh, same way that I saw low-income people placed to the side of this burgeoning digital economy. Back then, before the iPhone, it was whether or not you could get applications to a job in, in person or online. We were going to kiosk, and the only way that low-income people could apply was by doing something digitally. And you fast forward to today, and you cannot get a ride-sharing service not only without a smartphone or internet access, but without a credit card. And so these kinds of questions really stumped me on the structural inequalities that were embedded in technology. And obviously, that is emerging technologies like machine learning algorithms. And so when it came upon my attention about this issue through Dr. Sweetie, as a matter of fact, and yourself, when you were at the Federal Trade Commission, she showed this photo of, and told the audience to just take a look for three seconds. And it was the website for a Black fraternity who was celebrating their 100th anniversary celebration, like service. And she said, just watch carefully. And we did. And all of a sudden, get your arrest record for free, the highest interest credit card offering. And to me, that turned the light bulb on to say, technology needed sociological framework to understand those implications. And that's why I focus a lot of my time on how do we make machine learning algorithms and autonomous systems fair, equitable, and inclusive, which is, you know, I don't do it. And other people like myself don't do it, including Dr. Sweeney and yourself. Who else is going to do it? And so I find myself in that space, you know, quite a lot throughout all of the things that I work on. Wow. Thanks so much for sharing your story there. It's absolutely incredible to, to see how you kind of fell into this space and have made such a big splash now. And especially uncovering this divide that you discuss, folks who, who are discriminated against actively by the system, whether it's intentional or unintentional. And, and I know now you have a new book coming out uh, that we were discussing a little bit earlier. It's a provocative title, Digitally Invisible, talking about a new underclass. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, and I love the fact that you say it's provocative because 
my first title was really boring. <laughs> it was entitled like the future of the digital divide. One of my colleagues was like, I don't think that's going to sell any books. So I changed the title. So the digitally visible, how the internet created the, you know, is creating the other class. It's really interesting. It's going to actually be out in the beginning of 2022. It's my first signature book. I'm really excited about this book for two reasons. First, it's really a conversation around whether or not we have forgotten the digital social compact with people who live on the wrong side of economic, social, educational, political opportunity. So it is not a book about the digital device solely, but it's a book about the other America, people that sit on the margins of a digital economy that is transformative, but also one that makes decisions on whether or not you are included or you're visible or invisible, included or not included. That's a big jump for people like me who have always seen the digital divide as binary. Conversation has always been, do you have a computer? Do you have internet access? Do you have a laptop? It's either been device or it's been connectivity, the type of connectivity that you have. I'm pushing the envelope. The title itself is inspired by two books that I've read that have stuck with me. One was Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man that basically described that no matter how hard the protagonist worked, the Black man worked in that story, no one still saw him. And so that is yeah. the same thing wow. with the digital visible. No matter how much we try to say that they're there, we still don't see them, right? We still try to put them to the side and, and not give them light. And the book was also inspired by Michael Harrington, a sociologist, his book, The Other America where he talked about that in the 1960s, no matter how much poverty we saw and how much poverty we tried to solve with the war on poverty, we still undercounted and missed people because we didn't know who we were. And so the book is really about our failure as a country to do the proper accounting and the proper attention and leaning towards what is going to be needed to push people into the 21st century. And that involves close digital divide. And it was interesting, I would just say this, the reason that I'm excited about the book is that I am a D.C. person. I work in the Beltway, quote unquote. And we have very interesting conclusions and observations about the world in which we actually are, are working for. And so I decided to actually take the show on the road, retire my D.C. dress, either black, gray, or blue, <laughs> put on my walking shoes and walk through America, not literally, but just show up in places and ask people about their internet access. So I had a chance to go to seven cities, uh, Hartford, Connecticut, Stanton, Virginia, Phoenix, Arizona, Marion, Alabama, from the heart of the deep south to urban populated cities. I talked to people and there I actually met the folks that you will read about in the book who mm -hmm. give life to these experiences. So I'm excited about both because it had been a long time since I left the DMV area, <laughs> District of Columbia, Maryland, Virginia. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> But it's it's a nice portrayal of what digital access really means and what the divine really looks like. That's really interesting, especially your references to literary sources like Invisible Man about a different era in America, but in making that connection and how there's still ramifications that we see today. And I'm curious on your thinking um, when we first met actually was outside of DC um, in California in 2019. Yeah. And at the time, you were working with Brookings on a report on algorithmic bias detection and mitigation. And at that event that I was a part of, we heard all sorts of experts talk about how technology is learning from society and shaping it. And so what was 
the insights that you gained from talking to those experts and then how, how have they influenced the book that you're writing and you're thinking about how things need to change when it comes to building technology that does include everybody? You know, I love that. And when we had that conversation, it was one of the few opportunities, again, that I had to take the conversation out of the D.C. area. And and don't get me wrong, for people who are listening, you need to come work in Washington, D.C. I mean, that's where all of the sausage gets made. And so it's always exciting to see that process. But for me, what that conversation and that paper led me to believe is that we have to come to an understanding that computers do not discriminate. We do. And we as developers, civil society groups, industry leaders, and even government entities, we bring our values, norms, and assumptions to the table. And whatever we believe to be our truth actually factors into those models that are now being deployed for decisions on lending, on education, on housing, healthcare. And the unfortunate thing, and going back to, I mean, I have to admit, I was not necessarily born in the early 60s, just so you're clear. But when you think about Jim Crow segregation, when you think about what experiences historically that marginalized populations have had to deal with, what we are finding now is that newer technologies are able to uh, continue those persistent inequalities with a greater precision. And that is because despite Computers knowing that I'm a Black woman, for example, the ability of algorithms who pick up on the repetitive cues of the things that we do or how we engage with certain technologies, they become footprints. They create data trails. And those data trails not only, again, suggest that I'm a Black woman because I told the computer so, but it takes other activities that become inferences to my behavior. So I have a daughter. You may think I'm a Black woman by the magazines I read, the purchases that I make. Then you might think that I'm a mother because of the purchases that I make for my daughter. And then as Dr. Sweeney has said, you may take that and begin to develop these composite profiles where now the algorithm is surveilling me based on my last name, sounding Black, or my zip code of where I'm actually engaging in these trials. And that's why, Jen, I'm really excited about your work because we have not been able to articulate just how embedded technology is in society. These models that may be made in computer labs, they ultimately are deployed into real life. And I always tell people, when I think of algorithms, because again, I'm not a data scientist, the paper that Chit is referring to was probably the longest paper I ever did because it was a computer scientist, a sociologist, and a lawyer. Just never put us in the same room. And if you do, just give it a lot of time, right? But what it taught me was, because we all come with different approaches and lived experiences, that that in many respects, it, it tempers how we think about the positioning of technology. So it's really important for us to realize the technology that we have today is not going to simplify or reduce discrimination or racism because it's not being deployed in space. <laughs> it's being deployed right here where we are in many respects either uh, active or passive actors who have accepted the type of colonialistic as well as oppressive practices that have actually been historically embedded in our society. So I had to be deep on it. But for me, that is the disconnection that is not often made when we try to unpack bias in computer systems because we don't have many people in the social sciences that are actually talking to the computer scientists on those actual matters. Right. Uh, so in, in your experience, you put 
uh, just writing this paper, a bunch of folks from different walks of life, different industries into a melting pot, shook it around and, you know, came up with some recommendations, some ideas. What changes do we have to see in public policy or industry practices that might address a lot of these algorithmic discriminatory issues? Well, first and foremost, I think it's important that people understand that permissionless innovation and technology doesn't mean that it's break it now and fix it later. That permissionless innovation should not always land up as permissionless. We all remember when Cambridge Analytica basically harvested and then exploited our data, almost leading to the suppression of votes. And in some cases, some would argue it did, right, in the 2016 election, that we should not say, I'm sorry for that. These are the opportunities that foreclose on future opportunities for a marginalized population. They can't get that back, right? They can't get back their ability to exercise their right to vote, and they have no place to go if the computer actually suppresses it. And so I think the recommendations that I put forward, just like um, Janyan and his work, is that first and foremost, we need to have a floor that there is compliance with civil rights as a start there, that we do not develop products, particularly in use cases like housing or credit or employment where there are laws on the books and have identified and litigated and concretized what you can and cannot do to maintain the equity of certain groups. We need to make sure that computer scientists are trained, that they know what they are. And I'm doing a project right now that is actually looking at what that cadence is, because I think that is actually the next level of where we can at least start with a, a floor assumption. I think the other thing that I put out, which since the paper has become more clear, that it is important that the United States have a federal privacy standard. Right now, much of the reason why we can do the things that we do online is because we can collect whatever we want. And so without any type of privacy standard, like we have seen in the uh, EU with the general data protection rules, the GDPR, even China just came out with something on privacy, we're going to have this unfettered access to data that will allow for the manipulation of a variety of causal outcomes, good or bad. I think the third thing is that we need to have diversity at the table when we're exploring use cases that are sensitive to certain populations. It is a travesty that in some of the major corporations that are leading the AI charge, that they are not representative of people of color, of women, of people with other demographic attributes that are the subject yeah. of these models. So we need to do something much better on that realm so that lived experiences are pulled up to the table to be able to suggest that this is the case. I'll give you a great example that's like returned me in the last 24 hours. So I just heard about this example with Facebook where there was an algorithm just recently as part of an ad algorithm that had do you want to see more of this? And the more of this was what were interactions of protests between black and white actors. The more of this led people to primate or gorillas. It was this equation wow. of primates with black men. And it's, it, mm. it, people want to Google it. It was a big deal a couple of weeks ago. And I just like shook my head when I heard about it just recently, because in 2013, 2015, we had the same thing happen. An innocuous Google search of gorillas led people to the return of Black faces. To me, those may not be the civil rights concerns that are denying people opportunity, but they feed into, I think, the racist discourse that we have not been able to break in this country. And we don't want technology to be an actor 
in that system. We want technology to be what I always thought it was. I write about it in my book, a lower barrier to entry for groups that want to get in there and their reality. Well, I think that segues really nicely into the next thing we wanted to talk about. A lot of your work has been in internet broadband access and for lowering the barrier for disadvantaged communities. We've seen how important this is in the pandemic, right? Where internet has become the key to unlock all these kinds of resources, everything that we would have done day to day, like school, work, healthcare. Can you speak a little bit more about what you've been working on in this area? Yeah, it's been interesting, right? Because I started the book before the pandemic. And so I finished like all of my tours, visits, like two weeks before the pandemic. And I remember in my last visit, I went to two schools. One was a school in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, which was primarily Latina. And every kid there, by the way, carried a cell phone, not because it was cool, but because they needed it in case a parent was deported because they lived in Maricopa County. Wow. Okay. Yeah, oh, wow. that was a reality. And then I visited Marion, Alabama, which is about two hours outside of Birmingham. And there, those kids were sitting on the stoop before the pandemic of their school to get access because they lived too far from the school on a regular day. And they were poor. Some of those families didn't even have running water. But I share that because I remember coming back and saying to a couple of colleagues, I just witnessed a couple of really neat things. That communities, despite dealing with all of these deficits, they were recipients of the Obama administration's Connect Ed program, and they each had one-to-one solutions for their kids. And despite these two schools being low-performing, they recognized the charisma that came from the students and the teachers of being connected. And that person who was an educational expert said to me, but we don't allow computers in the school because we don't think it actually contributes to successful outcomes. It was crazy, right? And then two weeks later, the pandemic hit and every kid was online, right? 50 million kids were sent home. And we found out that we had the worst digital divide problem in the United States when it came to school. And we still do. Those kids that have returned back to school, about half a million now are affected by the COVID variant. They're going home for weeks on end when they're affected and they still do not have a digital solution. I've been working on... How do we solve that? And as you mentioned, we have a president that has taken Broadborn on as a critical infrastructure alongside water and electricity and other important assets. But we've got to figure out how to do it right. There were too many young people, 15 to 16 million, that did not have a device or broadband. Nine million who didn't have either. Out of those kids, we're seeing up to two years of learning losses. They did not learn anything because they either had to take care of their their siblings because their parents were frontline workers, or they didn't know how to maneuver through the digital uh, economy. And we see teachers who were sitting in the parking lots that the kids were actually doing their lessons simply because they did not have whole broadband. I think that this 21st century civil right of having internet access is serious. And a lot of people now, and I'll just take the kid situation, student situation, sit back and say, but no, no, Dr. Lee, we need kids back in the school. They need the normalization. They need this. But guess what? I had a 14-year-old that was online for school and I didn't like it, but she (laughs) now knows how to do independent learning. She knows how to do collaborative projects. She has the tools that are going to be needed in the 21st century. And so I just would say this, broadband is going to continue to be an issue because we have obvious challenges with access in terms of where it's located, urban, rural, tribal. We've got issues with adoption. 
in terms of how people are using it to solve problems, healthcare, education, work. And we're going to have to figure out ways that we can create jobs. So it's not just a consumptive technology, but people can actually work in these spaces and make livable wages. To me, that's a big charge for Trey. And I just like, I need to help, but I know I can't do it by myself, but there's so much that has to be done to get this right. Yes. I want to pick up on something you said, particularly about your daughter. I, I hear this a lot being like in the engineering space. People are raving about how it's so easy to learn anything online. Like everything's on YouTube, everything's on Udemy or Khan Academy, whatever. These are all ways to maybe democratize education. But are you seeing that actually pan out in practice for folks that wouldn't have otherwise have access to that information? Well, no, that's the thing. You can't, it, it's not panning out because people are not equitably equipped. I'm working right now on an initiative that I'm putting out. I'm a researcher. So for people who don't know what Brookings do, we're not legislators. I'm not running for Congress. I don't do any of that stuff. I just research these issues and put it out for policymakers to consume. But I put out recently something on the educational side called No Child Left Offline. We have spent so much time for a period of educational practice thinking about No Child Left Behind. You all remember that was in response to decades of educational discrimination dating back to the 1950 revelation of Brown versus Board of Education when we found out that schools were still separate and unequal. Today, we have a similar Brown versus Board of Education problem because there are kids that do not have the resources to get online to do basic things. I know a a family, for example, whose child had to uh, quarantine because of a COVID possible interaction. That child was home for seven days and there were no lessons being streamed to that child. The child is eight. And we should not have a state where every child that goes to school doesn't have a laptop and a textbook or tablet and a textbook, a Wi-Fi hotspot and a pencil, some digital tool, an instructional guidebook so that they can actually learn through this 21st century. And so in my view, We need to look at what the president, for example, is doing with these New Deal era programs of infrastructure and institute a tech new deal that ensures that we not only have no child left offline, but we're making sure that marginalized populations, who I consider to be digitally invisible, are visible, that they have this opportunity to create great jobs in their communities, as well as have livable wages. So you've done a great job describing all these different problems, um, especially when it comes to technology and access. So what's your take on there's now an infrastructure bill that's going through Congress. Included in that bill is potentially $65 billion of funding for improving broadband access here in the United States. What kind of investments would you like to see with that money? We do know that the money is going to include money for architecture and infrastructure like real hardcore infrastructure, bits, bytes, wires, poles, fiber, and the whole nine. So we know that there'll be a down payment in that. And that's particularly important because we've not had this type of investment from government. We've had this type of investment from the private sector, but not from government. We also know that the current proposal includes money for affordability, right? During the pandemic, we had a lot of programs that were there to buffer the affordability expenses of being connected. One of them was the emergency broadband benefit. And Jim, you know this in particular, right? We've always had universal service in this country, 
where those who have the lease are able to get some type of subsidy towards their broadband. Just a little known fact, this is in my book too, and this is something I talk about. So the Lifeline program, which is part of law that's been in place since 1986, was $9.25 subsidy. The emergency broadband benefit, which became part of the pandemic funding, was is $50 towards broadband service and $100 towards advice, more than triple the amount of what we have in current universal service. That explains why more than 6 million people have signed up in less than three months. <laughs> I share that, Jim, because the new proposal is actually going to continue affordability, which is great. Not going to be $50. It's supposed to be at $30. But it finally got that people do not need to decide between broadband and bread. I mean, heck, in some places, bread is $10 a loaf. So deciding between a $10 subsidy versus $30 is going to make a huge difference. And the proposal of the monies also goes to adoption. It's not as much as we'd like to see, but it will support community organizations that were serving against anchors. And that's alongside additional money that is being allocated to schools, the institution itself and libraries versus communities to bring broadband access in there. So there's going to be a lot of money. States will have a pool of money to actually go in and make their own investments. But let me just say this. Without a broadband map of where the problems are, without enough people sharing that we have to connect the least first, we don't know where it's going to land up. And we don't know if it will actually be enough to close digital divide. So... On that point, I think you've just laid out these are ambitious problems that is being tackled both in D.C. but throughout the country. And what is your take as someone who's worked for a good amount of time in D.C. around just the cultural differences working in Washington, which can be perceived um, as being slow and having lots of red tape and uncertainty in terms of what's going to happen with the projects you work on? versus the appearance of a much more fast-moving hustle culture in Silicon Valley. And especially for young people that are really trying to figure out where should they develop their careers and are interested in making sure that they have an impact, what would be your advice in terms of how they should navigate those decisions and what are the advantages or disadvantages of pursuing a career in public policy? You know, I think it's so interesting that you say that. I mean, listen, for all of the data scientists and engineers that are out there and those of you that are listening to this public interest tech podcast, let me tell you this. We still need you. No one in no way is putting you down and making you feel like you're not valuable. We need you. The question now becomes, what type of researcher, which type of engineer do you want to be? Do you want to be one that's ethical? Do you want to be one that is thoughtful? Do you want to be one that in the cases that there are going to be decisions that impact people's lives, that you have been thoughtful in terms of what that impact, intended or unintended impact will be? And I would just suggest to folks, now that we know that AI is going to be driving every aspect of our lives, it is so critical that we have more data scientists think about the ethical, the responsible, the inclusive size of technology. It's no longer about a computation. This is about a computational inquiry that may result in the foreclosure of opportunities for certain populations. So for me, as someone who works in Washington, our challenge is because we can't keep up with technology, 
And we're not necessarily trained engineers that work in policy. There are so many ways in which we can collaborate. If we want to make technologies more inclusive, then let's figure out ways to create more regulatory sandboxes or ways to co-create and co-evolve or have data sets that come out of places like your lab and work with policymakers who want to make a difference when it comes to ethical decision-making, non-discriminatory decision-making. But in the same token, I need my engineer friends, just like that paper, but I need them to also listen that those models matter more than ever before, not just on the good stuff of climate change and, and healthcare, but they matter because it will drive whether or not a person is included or so, yeah, I mean, people can always call me. <laughs> they can follow my work on Twitter, not the culture, not internally. But I just think that we just have to have more of these dialogues so that we're all sensitized to these realities on both sides. As a Black woman, what challenges have you overcame in your career? And if someone were to call you, uh, what advice would you give to those you know, young Black women or girls, even to your younger self, navigating these same challenges? Well, there's a couple of things. I wouldn't tell anybody to call me because I probably won't answer my phone, but you text me to email me or tweet me. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good advice. <laughs> I, felt, I felt quite old when I said call me. Like, who calls anybody anymore? Okay. <laughs> so as a, as a Black woman, a woman of color, I would just say this. When I decided to go into sociology, there were not a lot of women of color, Black people in general in the sociological field. In my particular cohort, there were probably less than five of us in a cohort of 28. And that was the largest class that we had at that time at Northwestern. Dates back almost 20 years ago. And so it is already tough to be a graduate student in an environment, particularly a predominantly white environment. But there's something that I think that is very special that I would actually give to uh, young women of color, young Black who are pursuing these careers. First and foremost, that your opinion matters. There were a lot of people who at first, early in my career, did thought that I was just, this, you know, uh, wacko sociologist showing up in conversations on technology that was not mindful of those expert areas. But one thing I did do was read a lot. And I found one thing that I would also give to people is that I opened the door where they were closed. And so where there were opportunities for me to step in, I stepped in. I didn't sit behind. I tell people a story of how I used to go to all these events in D.C. and I would sit behind the door until somebody I knew would walk in. And as the events got higher and higher in caliber, nobody liked me was coming in. I was going to be the only person there. I was the Sydney Poitier, guess who's coming to dinner person. And so I would say to everybody, walk through that door and know that regardless of what your background is, you still have something to contribute. I am now the Digital Divide diva and I'm the diva from the standpoint that I intersect my work with race and social justice. And I joined a cadre of women like Latanya Sweeney and other women across the academic field who are making a difference. Ten years ago, Latanya was by herself, and now there's a whole clan of us that you have to get beyond. And I would just share to every person that is out there that is listening, that feels limited in what they think their voice is going to be. Your voice matters because if they don't hear your voice or the way that you approach that question, the answers will always be the same. And that's what I love about. PhD in graduate school, because it is your job when you are defending your dissertation to tell your professors that my research matters. And that's why you both are probably sitting here today, because what you're doing matters. And I would impress that upon anybody listening to do not let a door close and you just keep pressing through until they hear you. 
that's fantastic. And I think a really exciting call for our listeners in terms of here's what opportunities are really available for you to take on. So Nicole, as we finish, I wanted to ask you that this podcast is called How Tech Becomes Law. Given your experience, how have you seen a technology and its design create new rules for how society operates? We could just look at surveillance technologies and how they have been pressed upon certain protocols that continue to over-surveil Black, Black and Brown communities and contribute to the unspoken and unjust rules of criminal justice. We think about the use of law enforcement use of facial recognition technologies. We think about law enforcement use of a variety of artificial intelligence and autonomous mechanisms, such as drone surveillance, durable maps, all those. They are now ways in which they're able to do inquiry into an investigation, but there are also ways in which they can further compound the inequalities that already exist in criminal justice. So in my opinion, that's when, again, tech's innovative insight into permissionless innovation should not become permissionless forgiveness. So I think it's really important for us to know that people of color historically have been surveilled. And now we have new ways, as I said earlier, with greater precision to surveil them even when it's wrong. And so those are the new rules of this new digital society that we have to go ahead and identify and mitigate before we progress on the civil rights of individuals in this country and abroad. Thank you so much uh, for joining Dr. Turner Lee. That was absolutely incredible and incredibly insightful. And thank you for your work. And thank you for listening. I'm Dhruv Gupta with Jin Yen Zhang, and this was How Tech Becomes Law. Thanks for listening to How Tech Becomes Law. We are supported by the Public Interest Tech Lab. You can find us online at howtechbecomeslaw.org and on social media channels at Tech Becomes Law. The music for this podcast was produced by Clarence Yap. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps other listeners discover us. Thanks again for listening and come back next week for another conversation on how tech becomes law.